Hi, and welcome to the Talking Dirty Business podcast. I'm Margot Prebenda. And I'm Sabina Husseini. We started this podcast with the desire to spill the tea on corporations and all the environmental, social, and governance issues they have. Our episodes are here to help people make more informed decisions, increase public awareness, and just vent on societal issues that blow our minds. Please note that any opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of any company or organization. And all of our research is based on publicly available information. We're here to direct your attention to certain issues that you may not have thought about before. Welcome back to the Talking Dirty Business podcast. As some of our listeners know, one of the main themes of this show is the systemic violence that indigenous communities face around the world due to corporate operations. Whether it's the gender-based violence women experience in areas near mining or oil and gas operations, or environmental disasters leading to the pollution of land and water. Many times and in different contexts, indigenous communities are rarely consulted when it comes to the use of their land. And this is really happening everywhere. For example, one of the recent big issues covered in the media was the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, where after so much struggling and all of the arrests and the passionate protests, not very much was done to change anything. So on today's episode, we have a very special guest with us, Lucas Stefan, who is the president of Human Cone, an organization based in Colombia, working with the traditional indigenous authorities of Colombia mayor government in order to defend the ancestral lands of Aliwa and the biodiversity that lives within. And I just want to put a few things into perspective for the listeners. Brazil and Colombia are the two countries with the most biodiversity in the world and are home to 342 indigenous ethnic groups. And that's actually, that's really shocking. These are only two countries in the world and 342 indigenous ethnic groups that probably no one has ever heard of. And so Lucas, who is on the line with us today, was born in the south of France where he grew up until his 18th birthday. He traveled to Montreal to study political science and was fascinated and very impassioned by humanitarian and student-run organizations since his first year. After his studies, he followed his childhood dream of traveling to South America to work on his project, Kone, which is a geosocial app for activism. It was here and during this time that his journey with Human Kone began. So, Lucas, thank you. It's so great to have you with us today to shed some light on the struggle which is happening on the ground. And my first question is, Lucas, if you can please tell us a bit about your journey meeting the indigenous leader that got you started and then starting the organization. Yes, well, uh, I'd say that um, in a way it was a, it was circumstances that made me meet this uh, person because I met him in the waiting, uh, waiting room uh, before a meeting with a big, uh, um, big organization for indigenous rights. And uh, and so I met Albert Mesa in, uh, in this room because I had a bit of difficulties at first to uh, to apprehend a big organization or to be heard by a big organization. So I met directly with this indigenous leader who, uh, seeing a bit of work I was uh, doing, 
uh, really saw maybe too the opportunity to connect the two worlds we live in and to do something together. So he invited me to visit his community in the Coldova, uh, next to a town called Montelibano. And uh, Montelibano is next to the Celo Matoso, which is the second biggest nickel mine in the world. Uh, it's an open uh, open mine, so just and, a and big this hole is, in the ground. This is in Colombia, right? Yes, in Colombia. Yeah, so to geographically, it would be like in between uh, Bogota and Cartagena. How big is this community exactly? So this community is uh, 5,000 members. They're from the Zenu uh, people which are like historically one of the biggest uh, ethnic groups in Colombia. Mm. Uh, and so uh, it is also interesting because, you know, we often have a bit the perspective of indigenous people, maybe through like the, the documentaries, the movies we watch, uh, but there is a diversity, an incredible diversity amongst mm. indigenous people also, not every group, group was uh, able throughout history unfortunately to preserve a bit the culture how uh, the culture that they that they have and the Zenus uh, have uh, adopted a bit more of a uh, a uh, farmer's lifestyle you know being more sedentary from nature uh, so they were all uh, in a situation where during the armed conflicts they were uh, they were uh, violently displaced from their lands. Uh, so in the context where I arrived, I arrived in Montelibano, which is a big town uh, with these people who are now living in the suburbs next to uh, Montelibano in a situation of uh, extreme poverty, because as they would uh, like to tell me, in a town you even have to pay to pee, you know? So, um, so yeah, it was in this context that I first got introduced to the indigenous movements and that myself I saw a bit uh, or I was sensible to the role that they are playing in environmental protection and in the little uh, the, the little attention they get in uh, in this process you know so uh, so I, I had a camera and everything so I wanted to try and give them uh, a voice or at least to uh, amplify this voice so uh, you said that these people actually were already pushed off of their ancestral lands. Is there any land that they still have? So the, the thing that's interesting too is that normally ancestral lands would uh, constitute the whole territory of Colombia. So uh, nowadays a lot of the, um, the actions that are in place uh, to uh, reclaim uh, ancestral lands are in symbolic places. Which are not uh, or have not yet been uh, put to exploitation. Uh, for example, Bogota is a Muisca territory. Uh, it was a sacred land, and now is Bogota. You know? So um, I, there is still a lot of their ancestral lands left up there that are also under uh, close attention from all the multinationals and uh, mining exploitations, and that they are at the moment trying to uh, reconquer in a sense. Uh, Perfect. So, Lucas, can you tell us a little bit then about your uh, organization and your role in amplifying the voices of the indigenous communities that you're working with? Yes, so, um, so I started working in, 
in Colombia as a, maybe what we could say a freelancer. Uh, and then little by little, I um, I imagine a bigger uh, a bigger plan because I also knew that it would be uh, impossible to do it myself. Uh, so um, I really wanted to go on the field. I wanted to be able to meet uh, the people that are fighting on a daily basis to protect our world. Uh, and I'm very influenced too by some works that I previously saw. Uh, for example, Human by an artist Bertrand who really tried to uh, let someone talk, you know, even if it is not a leader, even if it is a child, even if it this person may seem um, uh, maybe unworthy for some of uh, of, um, of attention. So I wanted to go see these people uh, and I wanted to do so not only in a traditional way of documentation where I would have been stuck in a only feeding information and maybe waiting for some reactions that unfortunately sometimes are slow to come. So uh, I wanted to directly tackle the problem and I associated myself with some paralegals so that we could use uh, communication in a way that could mobilize people but with concrete actions that is represented by legal cases. Uh, so um, I co-founded the organization with two other friends, Flora Magnon um, and Thomas Baudin. Uh, Flora is more in uh, the managing port, she's great with events, uh, and she works too with uh, um, popular movements to uh, do citizen lobbying, so influence uh, our leaders uh, in our countries too. Uh, and Thomas, who's uh, just finished and is a paral humanitarian paralegal, and so we got together and we found a little crew. So uh, we had uh, another person from the University of Aix, Marseille, who came, who's a paralegal too, and uh, a photograph and a cameraman. So with this uh, team of, uh, of diverse members, so that's one with the, the partnership that I had previously established with the Gobierno Mayor. So one of the organizations that represent uh, legally indigenous communities throughout Colombia, uh, we decided to start an action last August where we traveled to the land of Vichada. Vichada to, so geographically, it's uh, situated, uh, it's the region that is next to Venezuela at the east of the country and it's just above the big Amazon uh, forest. And the territory where we want is called Aliwa, and is um, has always been uh, or has always belonged to the Sikwani people. It's two hundred uh, people who live in throughout ninety thousand hectares of uh, of uh, acres of uh, which is a big forest called the Forest of Aliwa. Uh, so we went over there with my team. And uh, it's a place that's unique too, because 32 million years uh, before, one of the biggest meteorites that ever fell on the earth fell on the forest of Aliva, or what was before uh, um, the, the territory of Aliva. And it was a meteor that hit the earth there? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it changed uh, the consistency of the air. So it had a really big impact on the region. Uh, deviating to the river and itself, and uh, of course uh, attracting a lot of uh, 
of interests or of mm -hmm. foreign interests. Um, so we went in this situation. Also, the land of Aliwa is historically, uh, or since uh, the, the 50s, when uh, the first uh, uh, like white settlers came in, uh, in the 1950s, uh, uh, it has historically been also crops for the Cali cartel, also associated to the nar narco-traffickers. And it's also a region that has uh, always been under big... Um, with big activities of the FARC and also of the paramilitaries. So uh, it's, a, it's a context that's really difficult for them. It's a place where there is little to no law um, or enforcement of the law as it should be. Uh, and so we went over there in this context and we stayed for a month to carry out legal investigations to prepare the, a case that we are bringing at the moment in front of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and with uh, the camera crew, uh, we, uh, well, we did what we, we always do. We took pictures, interviewed people, and we're at the moment uh, broadcasting videos to, uh, to present the, the people uh, of Aliwa, their culture, their territory, and also their fight uh, in order to mobilize people to also add a public pressure uh, on the legal political pressure that we're uh, that we're ongoingly doing in front of the Inter-American Commission. Um, Luca, if I can ask you, so you said that it's 200 people that live on over 200,000 acres of land, no, right? It's 90,000 acres. 90,000. But it's just a but it's 200 people that are part of the yeah. Aliwa tribe. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's 200. Some of them have been displaced and... Ah, uh, so they were, there were more before and they've been displaced. So now it, is, is the population decreasing? Yeah, so the, the, the population has decreased throughout the years from the 1950s to nowadays. Uh, because some people by choice by, uh, or by fear mainly. Uh, have uh, been pushed to seek, uh, seek other places for refuge. Like, for example, uh, the governor I'm working with, so the governor, they call him the governador, who is the legal representative of uh, a community of uh, Les Waldo, a reserve, uh, is under uh, death threat. So as I was over there, mm -hmm. uh, he was threatened uh, and is now living across the river and in the community where he has family, uh, waiting for the situation to stabilize, you know. Um, so, yeah, due to the harsh reality, some people have been forced to, to move on and move out of the territory. Um, and based on, so you said right now you're collecting a case to, yeah. to present. What are the main issues and the main struggles that the community is fighting against? And what is the case that you're going to be representing or presenting? So, uh, so to put a bit of context, the case on, on which we're working comes after... Uh, so the first uh, legal recourse that was ever filed was in 98. So uh, after... Uh, let's say, uh, 15 years, and 2013, the Constitutional Court ordered the delivery of these lands. So they got, in the national level, uh, justice. And, uh, well, they didn't really get it, but on the paper, they did. The problem is, of course, the, and normally when a 
it was ordered, they had six months to do so. So it's now uh, been five years and nothing has changed. So uh, the decision of the Gobierno Mayol is to bring the case in front of the the international jurisdiction or the international uh, commissions. And uh, hence, so we're tackling it with the with two uh, different uh, but different but dependent uh, cases, which is a case of medidas cautelares, which are the urgent measures that have to be taken in order to prevent um, some uh, some uh, irreversible damage, and also a legal petition, which is a case that is more uh, it's a longer uh, a longer document, which and and uh, encapsulates a bit all of the of the case. So we're taking it um, directly a question that is uh, the violation of human rights, uh, the violation of the conventions that uh, protect indigenous people, but more than that, conventions that have been adapted into law in Colombia, uh, which is the, the Convention 169. And, uh, and so we're taking this angle and bringing it, of course, uh, and relating it to the environmental destruction that is happening and will happen in the future if uh, these lands are not secured for the Sikubanis and also the damage to the culture because uh, culture is also uh, an important, a vital thing that is also recognized by law. So um, you're talking about bringing this to international committees and I'm curious what what exactly do you think the international community can do? Because as you mentioned, these regions are really difficult because there's there's a lack of uh, legal recourse. If if there's guerrilla groups and paramilitary groups threatening these populations, um, if if they're the own the government of the country can't even control the situation, um, what do you see as a solution? Because it seems like there's so many factors here making it difficult. There's so many different um, groups that are that are threatening them. And you mentioned also, obviously, multinational companies, too, which is a whole different thing. But it seems like the lawlessness is such a difficult problem. I'm wondering, how do you see um, a peaceful solution being actually um, effective? So... Of course, I think that um, so either we take this uh, this case as an isolated case, uh, meaning that what we're going for is uh, so the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights is um, is known to uh, it's it's an, uh, on the American continent, so they had a lot of previous cases involving indigenous rights. So it's a commission that is uh, very apt. At giving like redress to indigenous groups, lately it has proven that uh, the political or like the pressure that they can exert on a country, uh, of course, they do not have any mechanism to enforce what they say. But it's always politics, you know. Politics is image too, uh, being um, uh, drawn in front of uh, the. The Commission on Human Rights for Human Rights Violation, when you're a country who pretends to be uh, at the initiative nowadays of the biggest peace treaty uh, in modern history, would not be a good thing. So what we're uh, doing is we're 
trying to turn it in a way to the image of Colombia on the international scene. When I say turn it, it's for me, it's not even turning because it's just showing the reality of it and a way for them to uh, say maybe that uh, the 90,000 hectares uh, of Aliwa um, are not as important as being uh, in front of this commission. So if we take it in an isolated case, it has proven before that, yeah, uh, some communities have obtained their lands through the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. That's why, too, we're trying to do communication, a communication campaign on the side to add the public pressure. So also, we are the people who are going uh, uh, on vacation in, uh, in Colombia every year. So we're also aiming at the tourists, at the people who um, nowadays are opening to Colombia, when maybe we're realizing that Colombia hasn't changed that much. It has just secured um, some places like Cartagena, Medellin, Bogota for tourists. But the rest of the country is still in war. Um, I, I, I strongly believe too that uh, this case can't be taken as an isolated one because it is not. Everything is interdependent. And I believe too that the root of the evil, in a sense, in this region is connected. Not, it's not a lot of different, like if it was the paramilitaries independently from uh, the multinationals, because in the end, the paramilitaries. Even if, okay, it could be an argument, and, but uh, for work for multinationals, work for the interests of many groups. Uh, and it is proven that since Ivan Duque recently was elected, they are more, um, they, they are more active, they are more present. And uh, since he's elected in August, there has already been 36 indigenous leaders that were assassinated. So, so is wait, who is more number. active? Uh, are you saying the the multinationals are more active, or the paramilitaries? The paramilitaries. Ah, yeah. okay. But working, so that's the, the the so you know the peace treaty that is uh, the that uh, that yeah. involves the Colombian government and the FARC is seen as many as also uh, a way for the government to get rid of the FARC or to have them. Uh, drop like or put down the weapons and uh, mm -hmm. places like the Vichada, which was historically um, uh, didn't belong but was controlled by the forts but now that they're all uh, putting their weapons down there there is no one to protect these lands from the uh, foreign investments or from the mining groups wow before when there were the forks mining groups wouldn't go over there because they would be kidnapped or they were uh, but nowadays, there is not. There, there remains some groups that are fighting, like the ELN, who has came back to Vichada. But uh, the power balance has changed and shifted uh, with the election of Duque and with the peace treaty, which makes and now these uh, places and the Amazon, which was also historically controlled by the FARC, is now open to exploitation because there, wow. there is no more. This is actually. I think this is really interesting, and I, I was actually at some meetings last week for the Business and Human Rights uh, Forum at the UN in Switzerland, and um, I, I heard a speaker who was actually coming from the UN Global Compact in Colombia, the Global Compact Network in Colombia, um, talking about how businesses are actually, they, the way that the Global Compact views it, because um, that's a forum for businesses, um, is 
is that businesses are actually helping the stability in the region because people view them as a sense something stable and um, normal, I guess. They're establishing a sense of normalcy in, in the country. How do you feel about that? Because it sounds like it's maybe for you know people in the cities or something, but it sounds like the indigenous communities would actually be suffering more from this. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I think that you know all the groups that have a lot of power have very good lobbyists too, mm-hmm. and they have a very clear message, and they know how to put it forth. You know, it's like I was talking about this aromatos before. Remember going on the website and seeing all these beautiful pictures with oh, we're like building schools, doing that, that, that. Uh, what I saw on the spot was very little help, or like just yeah. One school with no teachers, and uh, the reality is that they're taking away all the resources and leaving only the garbage. And I think that many Colombians nowadays, you know, like the last election, Duque won, but Petro, uh, a socialist, was at the second uh, round. And it was historical, never had it happen before. A lot of Colombians, especially like maybe young students, uh, are mobilizing and are starting to re- realize that uh, they are. Um, People, I don't know how to see, say it in a uh, non-vulgar way, but mm-hmm. that they, they are getting uh, walked on and walked on, and yeah. that eventually, if that continues, they'll be left with nothing. Um, because the reality is that the, the, the minimum wage is still at 200 bucks, um, uh, which is hardly enough to to survive over, over there when it is respected, uh, and that. Colombian people do not live very wealthy when they are in a country that should, because they have an incredible uh, amount of resources. Uh, so I think there, there's the the knowledge that they're getting ripped off and that everything is gonna dis- like they're not getting the the fruits a bit of uh, of uh, right, living in a country with that much resources. Yeah, so they're not uh, and, benefiting from the from the resources that they're yeah, yeah they're being taken yeah. out. And after the indigenous groups, well, uh, the Bolsonaro uh, said very well, I guess, what everyone uh, believes, or at least everyone and that is taking the decisions and these big exploitations and in many of our countries, is that the existence of indigenous people is a, an obstacle to the development of agro-industrial business. Um, and yeah, if you look at it rationally with an occidental mindset, it is. Why should 200 people own 90,000 hectares of land? Uh, even especially if it's exploitable and everything for our mindset, mm-hmm. and it remains for a lot of our countries uh, an absurdity. And it's, that's why even in Canada, even if they do it in another way, you're slowly getting rid of the indigenous status uh, through the blood quotas. And, uh, and every country has its way of doing it, but every country dreams of a future where there will be no no more indigenous people. That's how I see it. That's uh, very depressing, but also very, very true. I think that what what you've been saying so far is because Margot and I mainly do a lot of desk research on this this topic, and we've seen it not only in Colombia or in Brazil or in Canada, but also in Africa a lot. We have another episode on an oil and gas company where a community has been fighting for over 60 years to really get their voices heard because of the environmental pollution that that is happening. 
Um, and yeah, moving on from from all of this, uh, Luca, I wanted to ask you a question based on your experience working with indigenous communities and the indigenous leaders. What are the main differences in ways of thinking, ways of living, ways of behaving from uh, between us, I guess, what you would call the West and the indigenous communities that you're working with? So, so like I said at the beginning, I think that it's important to distinguish um, the, uh, like the diversity of communities. I know I've worked with a, a few of them and they've all apprehended like the environment and distinctive ways, but always with a great respect. And even when they had lost a lot of their culture, they would always look at the earth and tell me that they wanted to learn uh, again how to live and symbiosis with this nature. And when I'm speaking about that, I'm speaking of the people who were displaced now live in, uh, in uh, the cities or in the suburbs. Um, but in the, for the Sikwanis and the Vichada, where I was and where uh, the project I'm working on, uh, I remember speaking a lot to the people over there about um, Mother Nature and the protection of Mother Nature. And I often saw, maybe as for us, we would say uh, the, the beautiful naivety of a, child, of a child when he does not understand why, uh, why these people are so obsessed in destruction. Uh, I remember one uh, my friend Trejo who told me uh, that he had heard that gold and oil fed, that it gave you alimentation, but that he wasn't so sure of that. And that he decided, since he wasn't that sure, that he wanted to keep on protecting the nature. Um, that was a child know... that said that? Sorry? Was that, did you say that was a child that said that? Uh, that's uh, no, a friend of mine uh, oh, okay. who's uh, a younger, he's the son of the leader who's oh, 17 okay. years old, 16, 17. Wow. Uh, and I remember a lot hearing the, them telling me that they would hear the motosielas, the chainsaws, all day, all day. And that, uh, well, I just put a video today for the, that's called Don't Touch My Pachamama, where um, Catalina, one of the mothers of, um, a leader I was with uh, talked to me and talked about all these disruptions and the way that the fish are dying, the rivers are dying. And what's really funny, and I address it in um, another one of my work on the spirits, is that on the way I see it, the spirits are the animals of the forest, they're the protectors, and that's how they presented it to me. They always talked about these spirits, how with the spirits, the forest is happy, the forest is joyful, but since the settlers arrived, they killed all the animals, and little by little, the spirits are not there anymore. And the spirits are those who sing in the forest, There's, they're those who make the forest alive, they're the animals that that we are killing and we are, that, that are disappearing. So I think it's, it's incredible because it's, would be very difficult, I guess, especially for me, a foreigner, to explain exactly why, but it is just their being, their their nature as a human being that makes that the destruction of, of the environment is not an option. It is horrible. They see it as horrible. And even if the culture changes, if the, they are yet, yeah, of course, have more um, context with the Western 
uh, world. So one, one thing remains is that the land is not to sell and the lands uh, have the remains of their ancestors and they will not leave these lands, especially not for exploitation. That's really beautiful, that's the way they think. Um, and then kind of going a little bit further, uh, you wanted to touch upon grassroots movements right now and the environmental movement. So we see how the indigenous communities are thinking, but what what is the movements going on right now in Colombia and elsewhere um, kind of working for this or working towards this? Yes, so, so I think that like um, what's important is to see that the indigenous people locally are organizing. So I was talking about the Gobierno Mayor, there's the UNIC, there's the OPIAC, and they're all uh, groups that have came together, leaders that are working on a daily basis to protect their rights and the environment. What does the reason why 36 of them were killed since last August? It's because they represent the change, they represent the last front for the protection of Mother Earth. And I believe, you know, like I'm Well, I'm French, uh, I come uh, from Europe, and as I was over there, I saw that, uh, well, in France, there was uh, l'appel de Nicolas Hulot, la démission of our uh, environmental minister that caused a lot of, uh, of reactions, public demonstrations, and I know that it's not only in France, you said the that it was happening in Geneva, it was happening in England and the US too. Uh, and so we're in a time where we are conscious that everything or the development that we're in is wrong and that we need other options. Mm-hmm. But often we're also confronted that what can I do, you know? So of course there's everything we can do at home and we need to do it. But I also believe that We need to support the, the local movements who are protecting um, the places where there is the most biodiversity. Uh, according to the World Bank, 80% of land biodiversity um, lives in ancestral lands. So in the 22% that still belongs to indigenous people. I can't even imagine what would happen if this was to disappear. Um, and I think that Today, when I see young people or older people and I see their reaction, I see their disgust in front of what is, I encourage people to find a way to lend their voices, lend their support to these local movements that are protecting Mother Nature. And I strongly, I really believe that it's sad to say, but our voices and the West have more weight. Uh, and it shouldn't be that way, but it is sad reality and we have to be conscious conscient about it and we have to um, call on boycotts on the, the on the companies that are over there exploiting these lands we and that work or come from our countries and more more and essentially they have to be part of the discussion when we ourselves think what can we do for the environment mm-hmm. it's a really interesting point you make about us not feeling empowered and yet our voices are some in some cases stronger than the indigenous people's voices which is just really sad and but it also means that we have a bigger responsibility to be saying something and because it is it is also our way of life and our consumerist lifestyles that's leading to this destruction that's causing businesses to seek out more resources to produce more 
And and in the end, it comes back and affects all of us when we destroy the biodiversity in the world. It's it affects us through climate change and everything. Anyway, so yeah, a quick example on that, and the uh, the which is uh, like uh, sadly famous at the moment uh, for being in La Guajira and being responsible uh, for the they they deviated the river uh, to uh, so it's a charcoal uh, mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's uh, a lot of people are famished. It's a desert. There's no more water. There's no more crops. With what's happening with Venezuela, the neighbors, they have no more support from their families over there. And children are dying, you know. Mm-hmm. And this mine is, from what I heard, is the main, um, the main um, fournisseur, so the main supplier of charcoal for Germany. So, wow. uh, like, you understand like, the, wow. the enormity of the thing, you know, Germany, a country too, who is not the best, but not seen as the worst, neither, you know, in terms of the uh, right. uh, human rights and the public opinion and the public opinion, uh, like, is still responsible for uh, one of the worst crises at the moment, uh, uh, which happens in Aguajira with the Wayus in Colombia. Uh, so it's just an example yet to to show how how deep our life and yeah our way of consumption too, and that's why I believe that we can say something too because we come from the base uh, from the countries who are responsible. Um, yeah, I mean that all makes so much sense and it it's really so important right now. And really, Luca, I wanted to thank you so much for being on the show and and bringing that on the ground knowledge and your passion for everything um and uh just if you want to have a few final words to let the listeners know where they can go how they can get involved and how maybe we can have our voices heard yeah well for, first of all uh, thank you for having me on the show i know it's really important for me but also for the gobierno mayor who uh, they, they know i'm having this uh, this talk at the moment to be heard and i know that all the the media channels that can help us uh, or the podcast that can help us do so uh, it's amazing it's really great for us to be here uh, and yeah so i just want to finish to um, to wrap up a bit on on how can you guys who are listening uh, uh, be more active in this way so we are still a very young organization we started our first project uh, in august and we're looking at really developing and getting more people involved on it because I really believe that tomorrow we need a lot of indigenous uh, rights or uh, promoters in a sense or lobbyists, citizen lobbyists uh, to be in in different countries during the environmental meetings that happen to represent and to put forth the revendication or the reclamations of the indigenous people. So as I said, we work with a, on the legal side, but also on the communication aspect. So when we were over there during a month, we came back with a lot of footage, a lot of videos that we're now sharing on our social media. So we have a Facebook and an Instagram, as well as a website. We'll be on Twitter very soon. Um, and so you can find it. The website is humanconnect, so it's H-U-M-A. N with a space C O N E T. 
connect like community planet uh, so the beginning and the end of the two words um, and what we're trying to do is really to present the people of Aliwa and not to get stuck only on the problematics only on the things that are going wrong because it's a place of magic it's a place of wonders and we want to present the incredible lives and beliefs of the Sikwani people. So, for example, we had uh, some videos from the spirits to a video of football when we were playing with all the, the, the people over there because they really like to do that. Uh, and a video of, uh, of how when they made an bow and arrow that they offered me. Uh, so there's a lot of things on the cultural topics, on the community aspect, but also uh, there was many videos where they voice uh, their discontent and and I think that it is important to watch them, it is important to listen, to hear and with the information that you will have available, I believe that you can make yourself and your own, your own judgment and your own decision on if you want to act or not. And I want everyone to know that uh, the doors are always open and will always be open for the people who wish to contact us to know how they could get more involved. Uh, so I repeat that you can find us on Facebook and Instagram with the name Human Connect, H-U-M-A-N-C-O-N-E-T. And you can also find us on internet with humanconnect.org. Um, perfect, Luca. Thank you so, so much for being here. We really, really appreciate you being here. And we will definitely love to have you again to see how the organization, how the fight is going. And yes, it's really a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here.